School. So, you know, for a church our size, we are blessed, I think, with a thriving children's ministry. Um, thanks, I should say, to I think the most experienced, longest serving Sunday school director is Diane Sonda, and yeah. she's part of Blue Ocean. Um, without Diane, literally, I don't think we could have started Blue Ocean. Um, now, Diane is joined by Susan uh, Schaefer, and they're teaming it. Um, and Susan will actually be speaking in two weeks in our series. And since we started in 2015, um, we've been eager to find ways to um, do something that's not that easy in congregational life or in worship life, which is to integrate adults and children um, and to do that better. And so that's one of the reasons we have kids do uh, our readings many, many Sundays. We, you know, we have our dismissal song, which is like, I think our final, finest vocal moment as a congregation, this little light of mine. Uh, and lately we've been having the kids come up from Sunday school to join us for communion, which has been delightful. And we also are, are trying to focus on um, integrating the spirituality that we're mediating um, between adults and, and children. As, as you know, Emily laid out uh, last Sunday, I listened to her um, opening this new series, we're just in a really weird period of the church in the United States where the church is really obviously afflicted with like a legion of demons that seem to be manifesting, you know, actually supporting the rise of white supremacy and anti-immigrant fever despite the text, you know, our sacred text being in the opposite direction, homophobia, transphobia, the subordination of women, all this stuff that's just not so good is actually being supported by large segments of the church in the United States. And at the, at the core, this, this is, these are symptoms of a profound spiritual disease. Um, and younger generations, of course, you know, are just like leaving the church in, in droves by all the research data. I mean, the unaffiliated which is largely people who were part of churches and left either a generation or two ago, that's the largest sector of the religious landscape now, um, higher than um, evangelical, higher than Roman Catholic. And so there's a real urgency for church communities to bear witness, I think, to, to three aspects of Jesus' faith in particular. And this is a, our focus. It's our focus in in uh, children's ministry, and it's our focus here. And those three are empathy, this is like a precursor to compassion, inclusion, which is really kind of the heart, in a, in a sense, the aim of justice, and then wonder, which we could think of as like the spark of spirituality or connecting to the divine. And so we're focusing on these three in our series, and I get empathy, and, and it's been fun to kind of study up on this, uh, both in, the, in Scripture and in some of the research on empathy. In the Gospels, it turns out that empathy, the empathy of Jesus, is often the precursor or the beginning of God's good realm breaking into this world. And our reading today from the, it's from the Easy Reader's uh, Version cites one of many examples, and I'd like to take a, a closer look at that reading as we begin. It's in Luke 7. I'm, I'm going to use um, a different translation that David Bentley Hart, which really focuses closely to the feel of the original uh, Greek, man, um, the original Greek language of the Gospels. And it happened that in the next day, 
he, Jesus, went into a city called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. And as he drew near the city's gate, look, a man who had died was being carried out, the only begotten son of his mother, and she was a widow. So it's been like seven years since my wife Nancy died, and if I'm like meeting someone new and we're you know sharing our stories, if I ever mention that oh I lost my first wife and in 2012, almost without exception, no matter how well or little or well I know the person I'm talking with, they have like a troubled look comes over their face, a cloud comes over their face, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, and every time it's comforting, it's consoling, it, it feels like a little piece of my uh, loss is carried by the other person, and, and it's like a human connection moment. Luke's description here in, uh, of this episode in chapter 7 is very clearly designed to elicit that empathy response from us, the readers. Um, so as Jesus drew near, and then Luke says, look, or behold, look, that, that imperative look is aimed at us, the reader or the listener of this story. And it's like an invitation. Picture the scene. Look. Use your imagination. And then he describes the, the scene, the woman in the aftermath of this double loss. She's lost her only child, and on top of that, she's a widow. And if we're connected at all with what's going on, we're having that, oh, empathy response. Um, and then just as Luke calls us to look in the text, imagine, picture this, he emphasizes how Jesus also looked at the woman and had the same response that we as a reader are having. And seeing her, the Lord was moved inwardly with compassion. The original Greek is kind of quaint. It describes what we, we, we would call a, like a visceral or a gut-level response. The, the Greek is like literally moved in the spleen or possibly the kidneys, which were thought to be like the source of emotion in the human body. And it was like that ache in the gut that is that instant emotional response that we call empathy to the plight of another person or creature. Um, the majority of the healing episodes in the Gospels fit this same, same pattern. Jesus is minding his own business. He's out and about doing something when he encounters a fellow human being who is suffering. And he either sees them, some kind of sense is uh, he either sees them or he hears them crying out, or in one, one case, he, he feels them. They're touching him, and something happens when they're touching him, and seeing her, the Lord was moved inwardly with compassion. And so he makes a move, he takes some action in order to alleviate, if he can, if it's within his power, to alleviate the suffering. I don't know if you've ever been a dog owner in your home alone, and you're in a state of emotional distress. It's been like a horrible day or week or month or year or decade, and it's catching up with you, and you just start, all by yourself, you start crying. And before you know it, your dog has its head on your knee, and your dog is whimpering along with you. 
and you look into your dog's eyes and those eyes are saying, how can I help? <laughs> I mean, it's a powerful empathy response that other creatures give each other and give us. Empathy is a powerful and a beautiful thing. So my father-in-law, who is 87, showed me a write-up of, um, he's always giving me articles or whatever, and like family write-ups. And this was, a, this was someone who died at the, a little bit over 100. She and her husband both lived to 100, and they were in a nursing home. And the daughter of this woman is giving the eulogy, and this is the write-up that I'm reading all about. And the daughter told about visiting her parents in the nursing home. Uh, she had to fly in to do that. Her dad was a, like a retired Mennonite pastor or something. Um, and another, as she arrived, another resident in the nursing home was, um, was in distress, was in her room um, and was depressed. And the nursing staff or something came in and mentioned it to, to this woman, visiting woman's mom and how the woman is sitting in the room crying. And the father and the daughter proceed with the visit as if like, well, the woman can wait. I mean, my, our, the daughter just flew in from another state. She's visiting us in the nursing home. Let's have the visit. And the mother, who's the deceased, being eulogized, um, she objects. We, we can visit with each other later. And the father says, well, Mary just, just arrived. And at that point, the mother leans forward in her wheelchair and says to them, She's sitting in the room crying. <laughs> you know, like, where's your heart? Where's your empathy? So researchers, I think Emily mentioned this, um, at the University of Michigan Institute of Social Research, one of the very significant studies they've been doing, they're like really good at what they do, they've been tracking empathy in college students through surveys over many years. And since the 1970s, reported empathy among college students has actually declined 40%. Yeah. And most of that decline is since 2000, the year 2000. As, as conversation about empathy has increased, the use of the word has actually increased. If you Google it, um, the, the impact of it has decreased, or the experience of it has decreased among college students. And this has stimulated even further research about like empathy, like what is it and how do we promote it and what's going on with empathy and what forms does it take? And, you know, researchers say that, well, empathy, like so many other things, is a heritable trait. Like 30 to 40 percent of our empathy is like heritable. Like we all have a different like baseline kind of given capacity for what we call empathy. Um, there's some possibility that men have a slightly lower, like inherent, uh, on average, capacity for empathy. But still, there are many men who have more empathy than women, and, and men are capable of like quite a bit of empathy, are highly empathetic beings. Um, so um, there are three forms of empathy that have been identified in, these, in this study. One, one is emotional empathy. So that's the automatic response in the emotional centers of the brain, and, and that's a certain part of the brain is being activated in the emotional response, which feels like an automatic response of empathy. Part, probably part of the mirroring system. We, you know, we see someone crying and we get choked up. We just naturally imitate, mirror the 
interstates of other people. And Jesus seems to have had this, like bucket loads of this kind of emotional empathy. But there's also another form of empathy called cognitive empathy. And this is an encouragement to everyone who doesn't feel like they have a lot of emotional empathy. And that just uses the thinking centers of the brain, that you can stimulate empathy just by thinking about how might another person be experiencing something and and not using the emotional part of the brain but using all the cognitive parts of your brain and it can get you to the same place of empathy and it's a strictly rational process and this is the form of empathy that can especially be learned and you can kind of improve your empathy with cognitive empathy. Um, in Matthew 9, when Jesus um, looked over the crowd, and it says he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In John's version of maybe the same kind of episode, Jesus says to his disciples, look at the fields, the people, they're ripe for the harvest. Meaning, like, let's gather them into God's, into God's heart and love and, and care. And in that episode, you see Jesus, like, stimulating cognitive empathy. Look at the people this way. See them like sheep without a shepherd. Like, use your thinking brains and respond with more empathy. Um, so there's emotional empathy, there's cognitive empathy, and then there's applied empathy, which is, we would call compassion. Um, when we act in response to either emotional or cognitive empathy that we're experiencing to comfort or console or alleviate suffering or connect with another person, that's applied empathy. And there are three uh, empathy blockers that are worth our considering because I think understanding what the empathy blockers are that are working on us kind of gives us a pathway to improve empathy, um, both with children and ourselves as adults. Isolation from other people or groups of people blocks empathy toward those people. So empathy thrives with proximity. Jesus drew near to the city gates. There's always like a drawing near. There's always close physical proximity when Jesus has one of these empathy responses that leads to one of his acts of compassion. Uh, this is a huge factor like in our racial divide in the United States. Like We're actually more geographically divided now than we were uh, 30 years ago. Southeastern Michigan is one of the most racially divided parts of the country in terms of geography and neighborhoods and that sort of thing. Um, Support for marriage equality is like changing super rapidly across all different sectors of the population. Like it's like an unprecedented change. Racial bias is like just stuck, it's stalemated. It's not changing at all. It's not really budging from one generation to the next and probably it's the isolation effect. You know, um, most white people are relatively isolated from black and brown and red people. Um, So if you're white in the United States, you don't have many um, people of color who are neighbors. Your workplace is probably majority white. You You rarely have a friend who is a person of color. And if a white person does have a friend who's a person of color, it's often a long time 
before that person of color speaks candidly about their experience of racial bias to the white friend, and you can understand why. I mean, if you have something that is a source of great anguish and pain in your life, and you share it with someone else, and they say, oh, come, and they dismiss it, or they don't take it seriously, which is a typical you know, white majority response to that sort of thing, you're like, forget it, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about this, I'm not going to expose this to my white friend. On the other hand, if you're a person of color, you're constantly exposed to movies and television and music and art that reflects the majority perspective and experience. In your school and in your workplace, you're, you're with majority white people. And so the, there's an empathy gap, but it's like one-sided. The empathy gap between racial group tends to be very one-sided, and it's the majority not really understanding the experience of the minority, but not vice versa. Now, I was in my 40s. I, I grew up in the city of Detroit, um, and I was in my 40s before I realized that every parent with a child of color teaches their children how to carefully act during a tra traffic stop. Like, that's just common wisdom. I grew up in the city of Detroit during an area where there was, the, 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 you know, there was a white racist police force and black kids were getting stopped all the time and thrown around and I, I didn't know this until I was in my 40s and talked to a, a friend who was on the other side of town and said, oh yeah, this is my experience. When I was 16, I got thrown up against the car and whatever, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, I was just in, in a state of isolation and that isolation blocked my empathy. Okay, I'm listening to um, NPR um, A11A, it's in the morning, Joshua, Joshua Johnson, who's African-American um, interview, a really good interview, he's doing an interview on Burning Man, the phenomenon of Burning Man, which is what is in Nevada, it's like, it's like the, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of, you know, white liberals, you know, go to Burning Man, this festival out in the desert, and, and there's kind of like no rules, and it's a city, a temporary city, and, and they end with this uh, burning, this Burning Man in, in effigy, this big towering Burning Man, and they had, um, they had a recorded, um, as they sometimes do in this uh, program, people know what the topic is, and they come, they tell their little stories, and they had a story of an African-American uh, professor from a university who went to Burning Man, and it turns out there's like less than 1% African-American at Burning Man, and he's at the final ceremony where they burn the, um, the Burning Man in effigy, and people are drinking and enjoying psychedelics, and you know, it's mainly a white crowd dancing around this burning, towering inferno of the Burning Man, and the African-American had this like like a, almost a panic attack feeling in the midst of that. And it was like, I'm gonna get thrown into the fire. It was like a classic scapegoating kind of ritualistic event. And he, he shares this uh, on, the, on the recording. And jo uh, Josh uh, uh, Johnson talks to the panel of three or four white people from Northern California, progressive, liberal, they like Burning Man. And they're, they're like, well, what do you think about what's going on at Burning Man in terms of diversity? 
And this guy replies, oh, he's like a ex, you know, he's like a hippie kind of guy, an aging hippie, and he's like, oh, well, there's lots of, lots of diversity of socioeconomic class and background, many different people, maybe racial diversity, not so much, but I haven't really experienced any racial issues at Burning Man. <laughs> I'm like, I wanted to jump into, my, into the radio and you like, oh my gosh, this guy's exp- told this story of feeling this scapegoating panic kind of thing. And of course he would with lynching and all this history. This, this guy's just completely isolated from the experience of his fellow human beings. And he's totally oblivious, as many of us are. We have, that's our starting point. So isolation from other people blocks empathy. Um, emphasizing differences between groups of people is a strategy that blocks empathy towards certain groups. So you know, obviously the White House is now daily singling out various groups. Muslims, immigrants, people of color, differently abled people, heavier people rather than thin people, journalists, and, and all being identified as like different, as not trustworthy, as suspicious, sometimes like disgusting. And th- well, this is like a strategy of empathy blocking. And, and, it, and, it, and it works. In the language of scripture, like our hearts are getting hardened by this and getting stoned, stony, inert, and unable to respond. To, to respond in the natural, human, empathetic way. And, and this is going to like intensify you know, in the election season. We, we just know that. The psalmist, I think it's Psalm 50, had a, had a leader like this, and, and he prayed, Lord, save my soul from lying lips, from the tongue of the deceitful. It's like he understood that leaders have a, like a corrosive power on their people, and the main way it is corrosive is through this empathy-blocking strategy. So, so emphasizing differences between groups of people is, is a powerful um, empathy blocker. And then a third that I would note, we're probably going to do a series related to this in the fall sometime, toxic masculinity, or better said, toxic approaches or ways of thinking about masculinity. Um, you know, um, the research says blocks the natural empathy of boys and men. And it starts very early. Like boys and girls are like very close in their empathy responses. Girls a little bit higher than boys, according to the research. But then at a certain age, the gap uh, widens considerably as boys through social socialization have their natural empathy blocked. Um, you know, it's, but this is especially the case in societies like ours that have to raise large armies for war. So in World War II, um, they discovered that 80% of the soldiers wouldn't aim to kill in battle. All the killing that was done in the war was done by 20% of the soldiers. Army said, we have a big problem in our, on our hands, and they got the psychologists working on the problem, and they came up with empathy-blocking strategies for, for training soldiers, and they improved the rate of... because of, we are just naturally empathetic. It's hard to get someone to kill another person. You have to work at it. 
You know, males are ashamed typically for crying at an earlier age. Um, um, tears at the suffering of others is just like a natural human response and boys are like inhibited from having that natural human response by social shame. And so taken together, you've got isolation, you've got emphasizing difference, you've got toxic understandings of masculinity, and you have a powerful trifecta of empathy blockers going on. And this has led to the spiritual crisis that we find ourselves in. So just being alert to these blockers, I think will tend to like release our God-given empathy response. So practical things we can do. Um, encouraging kids, if we have an influence with kids as, as parents or teachers or aunts or uncles, um, and encouraging ourselves as adults to move beyond the birds of a feather flock together tendency which is like it gets intensified in a world of social media and we're more and more fractioned. It's easier and easier just to hang out and be influenced by people who are pretty much just like us. So working against that, um, encouraging um, uh, older kids to spend some time with younger kids intentionally helps them develop empathy skills because the older kids have to like decode why is this younger human being acting the way they are in order to interact successfully with the younger human being so just the practice of working with people who are different than we are naturally enhances our empathy skills um, you know parents and teachers who are coaching uh, kids how to relate to differently abled uh, kids or those with autism and other things of that nature um, in investing in settings like uh, where we meet with a variety of people I mean, compared to like your professional bubble, like a, a church congregation, you often have more contact with a wider variety of people and that like helps with empathy. I think that's actually one of the significant reasons that we're exploring connection with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries that Carla and Emily talked about. It's like it's a, it's a, it's a fellowship of ministries. It's like a group of pastors and, and is pretty much run by African Americans and a high percentage who are, who are queer, who are LGBTQ. And like, wow, that would really be good for us as a congregation to have that connection. It would just broaden our experience. It would help us see the face of God uh, more clearly. So another thing is that if we are a majority people, realizing and just accepting and admitting we suffer from an empathy gap based on isolation. And that means just doing our homework to close that gap. Um, searching out books and media and films and articles and podcasts that tell the story of the human experience from a different perspective than a dominant majority white perspective. It's not that easy, actually. You have to be intentional about it. Um, sharing the experience in whatever way you can with the uh, people who suffer under the racial and the gender oppression of our society. Um, actually just like noticing and admiring and commenting on people who show empathy is like a good way to increase your own like tuning into empathy 
Uh, so like, just be on the lookout to people around you who are good at this and pay attention to them and notice them doing it. It's a great way to um, work with kids is to notice them like occasionally stumbling into, stumbling into empathetic responses and a little bit of self-control and you praise them for that and you notice that. But like uh, with adults too, you know, like um, we all have times when we have to call the, you know, the service provider on the phone thing and you're on you know you're on you're on the hold for the with the inane music and you're just irritable by the time you talk to another human being on the line and just now and again you 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 run into someone who's just they're thoughtful they're kind they care about your problem they go like the extra mile or foot or inch to help you out and you know like to just notice that and to comment wow i thank you you've you've really been thoughtful and attentive and i, I really appreciate it or like you're standing in line at um at the coffee shop or whatever and the person in front of you is just having a horrible um, day, week, year, or life. And, and it's just like taking it out on the barista or whatever. And the barista is just being calm and non-reactive and sweet and, you know, a gentle response turns away wrath. And, and then it's your time. You're a little bit annoyed because this has taken a long time. But you just stop and say, you know, I really appreciate the way you treated that person. That was really impressive. Um, noticing empathy in others will naturally enhance it in ourselves. There, I've been um, reading a book. Um, it's a child-rearing book, but I find reading child-rearing books is great for just um, rearing yourself, you know, for lack of a better phrase. But, um, and it's called Second Nature, Using Neuroscience to Help Kids Develop Empathy, Creativity, and Self-Control by Aaron Clabo, C-L-A-B-O-U-G-H. I'll put it in the notes, and we'll put the notes on, online in our sermon section. A PhD neuroscientist who talks about, um, she's got this thing about time out. Instead of giving a kid a time out and saying you've got five minutes or ten minutes, they, they, you teach them to walk through um, a three-step process, um, O-U-T, own what you did, you know, I licked uh, Mary's peach and, you know, <laughs> while she wasn't looking, um, you know, understand, you know, how that would have affected her, you know, she would have been mad, she would have been annoyed, she had to wash the peach, and then tell how you would do it differently. Next time, I won't I'll lick my own peach or, you know, whatever. So time out. You just have the child kind of go through that. And you can give yourself a time out if you need it and go through those three steps. And uh, that's a spiritual discipline. Um, I'm going to just close with a testimony uh, about how I got my empathy back in the mid-1990s. So I came to faith in the renewalist Jesus movement experience of the early 70s, and it was different then than, than contemporary Christianity is now. And so I was part of that cohort of people that were, were kind of like into the earliest Jesus movement, and then it got kind of engulfed by evangelicalism and co-opted, and it changed. And it was, it was an experience of like being the proverbial frog in the, in the you know, room temperature water on the stove that gets hotter and hotter, and you don't notice it. 
And the symptom of all that, so it, was, it, it migrated into like, oh, women can't do certain things. It, you know, all of a sudden homosexuality was like the big horrible thing. And there were all sorts of like toxic things that just slowly emerged. And if you were a pastor in that setting, that affected you in all sorts of ways. And the way I, f I first really noticed it in the, in the mid-90s as like a, it was like a spiritual crisis for me. And it was just like, I felt like my heart was just kind of like hardening. And I was a pastor. And I realized, you know, I haven't had a good cry in decades. I'm in, I'm in my early 40s at this period. Haven't had a good cry in decades. And yet I'm hearing all these stories of people's trauma and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, what do I do with all that? I was like, there's something wrong with me. And I, I read Jonathan Edwards who actually talks about the emotions and the role of the emotions in spirituality in this really charming, archaic language of the humors, the bodily humors, their language for feeling, and the hard heart and the heart of flesh. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's me. And so I was a good charismatic. And, and so I, once, a, once a week, I did like charismatic prayer, like walking around in the office all by myself and taking, I learned three chords and I kind of <laughs> sang songs with three chords and I made up lyrics and I shouted and I stomped. And, and, but it was all intended to say, God, just like soften my heart. Like I knew I needed it bad. And it was about maybe the fourth week of that, that while I was praying, I started like getting a little bit choked up. And I hadn't, it wasn't connected to anything. And I was like, oh, okay. Next week, it was more. The next week, I was sobbing for an hour. And I did that for six months. Every Wednesday morning at 6.30, I would do my charismatic praying and it would lead into this non-rational sobbing experience for about an hour. Uh, Nancy would knock on the door first, the first few two. Are you all right in there, Kenneth? I'm okay. It's just good. And it was like I got my empathy back, and it was so helpful for my mental health, and it led to a lot of changes in how I did pastoring. So I believe there is like a divine um, encounter. It doesn't have to look like that. I was an extremist, so you don't have to like go through that kind of experience. I was, I was like blocked up real bad, you know. <laughs> I needed some freedom. Um, you're probably not blocked up as bad as I was. Um, but there is a divine connection that can release our like God-given empathy capacity. So we're going to do a little quiet reflection now. Um, we're going to use a text from John 7, 38, and I'll just read it to you. Jesus is in the temple. They've just done a little ritual that involves the priest getting water from the pool of Siloam and pouring it at the base of the laver and the, in the temple courts to stimulate the Ezekiel vision of the river coming from the base of the idealized temple that Ezekiel saw by vision. And he stands up and he cries out with a loud voice at this moment, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever has faith in me, as scripture has said, out of their inner parts, streams of living water will flow. 
If you notice the similarity of language, Jesus was inwardly moved by the widow. His inner parts were moved. Same language here. So let's use this for our, our uh, reflection time. Just begin, just get re relaxed and comfortable in your seat there. Maybe take a couple of deep breaths into the nose and out through the mouth. And picture yourself next to a stream or a river or it could be like a really clear lake or an ocean, maybe some place you've been to that you like. Just picture yourself next to that living water, flowing water, and just look at it. So your job during this two-minute meditation is simply to return your focus to that image of this clear water, river, flowing stream. And then every 30 seconds or so, I'll just repeat this phrase from the gospel, out of your hearts, streams of living water will flow. Out of your hearts, streams of living water will flow. Out of your hearts, streams of living water will flow. Out of your hearts, streams of living water will flow. Amen.